Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. I wanted to let you know that we have a special live event coming up at Neshota House Theological Seminary in Wisconsin. It's very soon on July 21st at uh, between 6.30 and 9.30 p.m. You can find out more about it on our website, and you have to register in advance because of COVID-19 restrictions uh, in, in, in number, so there are only limited spots. Uh, so if you go to onscript.study forward slash events, you can find out more. So this is with Dr. Janine Brown talking about her book, Gospels as Stories. And Drew Johnson will be there. I'll be there. And it's going to be a great time. And hope to see some of you there. And I hope you enjoy today's episode as well. Welcome to OnScript and the Center for Hebraic Thought joint podcast. This is the first time we've done a joint podcast, but it's on a special topic, and it's with a colleague and a friend of mine, Yako Gericke or Jericke, with a solve it once and for all. Everybody asks me how to pronounce your name, and I say, I can't, I don't think I do it right. So how do you pronounce it? Um, I would say both are right, because the, the original German is Gericke. And uh, the Afrikaans people say Gierke, uh, that is more from a Dutch and other background. So you can you can say Gierke, or everybody from America says Gierke, and they, they say Yaku, but you can just say Jacko. It's really okay, because it's from Jacob. I like Yaku. Yeah, okay, no. <laughs> Yaku, it's more Semitic, you know, Yaku. Uh, yeah, it is from, both are from Jacob, but it's uh, the uh, Jacob is just a Latinized version, but I'm, I'm not... If, if you can call me anything. <laughs> so, uh, Yako is an associate research professor at Northwest University uh, at Val in South Africa. Um, and his research has been on area of interest of mine uh, for, in fact, I think he's a pioneer in this field of philosophy in the Old Testament. What do we make of those two? Where do they mix uh, and how does that mixture work? And he's previously functioned, or sorry, uh, published a, a groundbreaking book with SBL Press called The Hebrew Bible and Philosophy of Religion that's gotten a lot of attention and a lot of footnoting. Uh, he also published What is a God? Philosophical Perspectives on Divine Essence in the Hebrew Bible with TNT Clark. And we're going to be talking today about uh, his newest book with Rutledge called A Philosophical Theology of the Old Testament, a historical experimental, comparative, and analytic perspective. And all four of those adjectives uh, are deeply meaningful within this work. Um, so welcome, Yako, to OnScript and CHT Podcast. Thanks, Drew. Happy to be here. Um, and hello to your audience as well. Um, so for those who are not uh, familiar with you, you're, you're from South Africa. You did all of your education in South Africa. Is that correct? All my education, yes. I'm in Pretoria, University of Pretoria. I did a postdoc in Germany, um, but the rest yeah, I studied here. So you're an African. Is it? Do you call yourself an African philosophical theologian, or? Um, I, I would call myself that. Um, it's just that 
that is also a technical term for people who work in either a specific tradition within biblical scholarship or from a specific cultural background. But I'm more than happy to be called that. I just know it's it's a very complex concept. So um, uh, people might have many associations with it. And um, But I would consider myself, I was born here and our ancestors came in the 18th century. So I guess in that sense, yes. Um, and if you can just outline, so you have many advanced degrees, I think more than the average scholar. Um, could you just outline your kind of path to scholarship? What did you study in university that made you want to do what you're doing now? Okay. Um, yes, well, since I was about 12, 13, I wanted to become a missionary. And I really didn't like school because most of the subjects didn't seem relevant to that. Um I eventually, because my uncle was in church history um, and already a theologian, and we are in part of the Dutch Reformed Church, which we were, which is like the Presbyterian Church in your country, I guess, or the Reformed um, groups. And um, he told me that I can't become a missionary in the church unless I first become ordained. So I had to do the usual theology pathway according to that, which is a BA degree and a postgraduate qualification with practical work and so on. So after school, I went to the University of Pretoria, where my parents were staying at the moment. And um, actually, I didn't like Old Testament studies in the first year very much, um, because I was more interested in systematic theology, and I also took philosophy one and further because we had to choose humanities subject. The theology was usually structured, you first did a BA in humanities in general, and then you did started specializing in theology. But by my time, you already did theology from year one, a six-year course for those to be ordained, three-year BA, three-year afterwards. And um, I did philosophy for my first year, and then... Because the Old Testament department was what I would call very, what you would call liberal or critical, and they did not really um, seem to me something I could be interested in because I was raised in a more fundamentalist context for for you guys, if you know John MacArthur's work and so on. I mean, that was my... Oh, wow. So... That was... So... That was, yes... My okay. my background into the university. So for the first four years, I really did not like Old Testament studies. And after I read some of James Barr's stuff, um, my mind changed on some things reluctantly. And by that time, because Old Testament was the only place, ironically, where this critical thinking was um, allowed, the very thing that initially made me did not like studies in Old Testament at the university was eventually the only place I ended up. So by that time, I couldn't do missionary work. I had a crisis of faith, and I couldn't do systematic theology either. So I ended up in Old Testament because I also did Semitics. And eventually, I thought maybe if I go back to the ministry, I can find my way back through socialization and so on. But eventually, I wanted to stay in academia. There's nothing else I would rather do. Um, and I ended up in Old Testament in a way by, by a, some would say, accident, but um, in the end it all makes sense, the closer you look at it. In the sense that I was always, sorry, um, 
interested in biblical stuff, the biblical, you know, the Bible. Right. And today, would you consider yourself an atheist, agnostic? Where would you place yourself? I know some people make hard distinctions. Some people don't care, but. Yes. Um, I guess from, let me just keep it short and sweet in this context, get <laughs> okay. technical and complicated. I didn't want to call myself an atheist initially. And then in, for those people who have struggles with faith and go through various phases of liberal agnostic atheist, there's a time when one wants to call oneself atheist, depending on how difficult it was, the journey and so on, and how much issues one has in oneself and related to a lot of things involved in one's faith. I would have called myself an atheist 10 years ago, but now because of all the associations with that word, if you call yourself something that most people associate it with, you, you have this checklist of things that you don't believe in or should believe in. But for me, that's not the point, and I don't subscribe to the new atheist movement's way of looking at the Bible. And Well, there's also differentiation there, but I wouldn't call myself that just because the associations are too, too stereotypical and, yeah... That's why a lot of people don't like to call themselves even Christians. Yeah. I actually don't know what I am, but I, and I'm not that. It's like a negative atheology. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I understand exactly what you're talking about. Okay. Uh, and I can understand the impulses there. Um, so um, I, I think it, it's always interesting to, uh, to you know, I, I deal with lots of students of varying faith uh, commitments uh, and some no faith commitments in some of the same place uh, where you're at, maybe not where you're at, where you've landed, but maybe struggling with the same things. And um, they, uh, they are always shocked to find out that probably equal or majority of biblical scholars aren't really, you know, confessional Christians, basically. And they can't, they can't understand why anybody would want to study the Bible if you didn't believe every word of it, and in some cases, why you don't believe every word happened exactly historically as they, you know, they've been taught. So what, what's your thumbnail? I assume you get this question, um, but uh, what's your thumbnail answer to that question? Well, first of all, I also couldn't understand why I should continue. I, in fact, when I started if I may say so, losing faith, I couldn't look or read the Bible for almost two years. It was just too painful. And um, I would not, uh, that's why I went into Semitics first, because you can do the whole ancient Near East. And I couldn't understand how there are scholars, because I also then learned how many there are, especially in Europe and the UK and, well, everywhere now. And for me, it didn't make sense, especially if you come from a background, like you say, where you have this view of Scripture where it, it, it's look like this, and if it's not like this, then why we bother and so on. So there are times now when I ask myself why I bother, but it has nothing to do with the whatever dogmatic view it is. I guess if you, I can answer the question or how I do answer it now is if you ask people why they study ancient Egyptian stuff or Greek um, works or anything of the ancient world, um, then I will say, well, for the same reason I do that, because it's interesting, but that would be only half a truth, because people don't study the Bible just for that. It's supposed to be very different from those things, and it's not like the same 
experience when reading the Bible, and you have all this history of background and cultural associations with the Bible. So it's a very difficult thing. I haven't solved it yet. At the moment, my most honest answer is I'm doing it because there's something for me to do there. I There's something I'm able to do. It's it's a wonderful job, and I'm trying to find new ways to make it interesting because there's some parts of one's past one can't digest. So that's it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I find your work to be, uh, you know, among other things, uh, the highest level of integrity. I think that it's it's almost a gold standard for integrity. So even as I was uh, rereading this book, uh, I just kept on thinking. Even if you disagree with anything Yaku's saying, you can't deny the the level of the bar of integrity that you set for what we're doing as scholars. And uh, for that reason, I think this book actually should be a prolegomena for anybody who does anything in the line of biblical theology. Um, so let's get into the book a little bit. Uh, I should also warn our CHT uh, listeners, if you listen to the Center for Hebraic Thought uh, podcast, we've typically kept things at a very friendly layperson level. This will not be that. This will be nerdy uh, and scholarly. So uh, it might be a, a little difficult to follow along, but that's okay. I'm sure you're up for the challenge. It will be interesting uh, nonetheless, but we're going to use some technical language here, maybe without explaining all of what we're talking about. Um but uh, to just begin with, you talk about philosophical theology and biblical theology, um, and I think a lot of people, uh, A, they won't know what the difference is here. And I, I find when I explain my own work to biblical scholars, they say, well, now what are you doing? I say, well, it's kind of like biblical theology, but on philosophical topics. So how do you slice these up, uh, particularly in this book, is what's the difference between the philosophical theology of the Old Testament and just a biblical theology of the Old Testament? Um. The analytic philosopher in me would want to say, it depends on what you mean by biblical theology and philosophical theology. Um, um, and uh, the biblical scholar in me would want to tell everybody that there's a history of baggage between these two disciplines. If you study theology, you will find that biblical theology is usually presented by Old or New Testament scholars, um, or as some part of a systematic theological course, or in between. And what you will find is that philosophical theology is either presented by also systematic or dogmatic theologians, or as part of a, another subject like the science of religion, or where you have a philosophical approach to it. And, um, and some philosophers also do philosophical theology. I would say that these distinctions are very modern. Um, I think in the ancient, well, ancient, in late antiquity and the medieval period, while there was people that distinguished between biblical and philosophical ways, the history was not so tense always. Of course, there were always tense tension between or perceived tensions between the Bible and philosophy in the sense of some Christians and well, what you would call pagans um, did not find these two to be commensurable or, or that they could be ever harmonized or should be or that the one is the enemy of the other and there are various ways to to show this. Um, I guess the most important thing if one has to sum it up is to know that during the previous century for various reasons 
there were a lot of biblical scholars who felt philosophy had no place in the study of the Bible because of the history of biblical interpretation where the use of philosophy and specifically related to the Old Testament theology has caused a lot of what one would call reading things into the text or um, trying to do things with it that from a historical or linguistic or literary perspective, the text never intended. Um, of course, that's all another topic about how you should stick to intentions or not or what's needed, but philosophical theology can be distinguished from biblical theology by saying biblical theology is various, um, but it basically tries to tell us what the theology of the biblical texts are, whether in small scale or large scale, whereas philosophical theology is supposed to be a theology with, where you don't appeal to the Bible for authority, but you use reason to argue about God. Now, now can go back to the biblical God, and most philosophical theologians do that, but it's more based on not appealing to text or authority. You have to argue your points better. You can't just describe what goes on. You have to show it's reasonable, if I may say it like that. And of course, with a lot of um, everything has to be qualified that I said, because it, it's so complicated. <laughs> it is. a. I mean, I tell people who don't understand biblical uh, studies, I say, like, look, when I go to my big conferences with biblical scholars, I can't actually tell people, I can't say the words biblical theology around a lot of people because it triggers them so quickly, right? And, uh, and, and until reading your book, I thought, well, probably I can't say philosophical theology, you know, in the same way, um, you can't say philosophical theology around a group of people as well without being triggered. And part of the goals of this, this book, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is to show that whether you like it or not, if you're doing biblical theology, you're doing some kind of philosophical theology as well. And so the question is how well you're doing that task. Yes, true. Um, I think what gets confused is that biblical theology is also the name of a movement that tried to distinguish Hebrew and Greek thought, Greek being associated with philosophical thinking and Hebrew with the biblical. So biblical theology is, is not only usually understood by biblical scholars as something that is the theology of the Bible, and some would say there is no theology, it's just the theology of theological perspectives on the Bible. Others would say there is no pan-biblical theology or whole biblical theology. We would distinguish between theology of the Old Testament, and there are many theologies of the Old Testament, and it's not even the Old Testament, it's what's implicit in the Old Testament, in what it applies or assumes about God. And here's the thing, theology itself is, a, in a way, a philosophical term. It was first used in the Greek context. It's a Greek word, and most Old Testament scholars or biblical scholars would just spend some time explaining that before moving on to saying, okay, that was that, but let's now um, just focus on the, the biblical stuff um, or a specific part of it. But the thing is, all the, the language of theology, if you talk about God, the nature of God, divine attributes, um, anything that has to do with theology, the language in which we speak, or if I use a metaphor, the currency in which we trade, is always philosophical. And you don't have to be a philosopher. You just have to speak English. So many of the words that you use, words like essence, words like um, characteristics or qualities, even though they get taken up into other contexts, in language, in biblical scholarship, 
They are also technical terms in philosophy, and most Old Testament theologians use these terms in their philosophical sense, even as they say we shouldn't do so. So my point was just to say, well, not that we should purify biblical theology of all philosophy and so, but given that we are always doing it, let's just be aware of it. We can't purify it. You can't um, not use it as long as you do theology. Let's just be aware of it and see what different games we can play, take ourselves both seriously and not, and see what we can appear to bring out of the text as one would do in any other method, like sociological or historical. Because all those languages of those subjects are also technical and as of history and philosophy. Yeah, I, I think one of the examples you give, and uh, I can't remember whether maybe it's Sailhammer or Golden Gay or somebody who wanted to talk about the immutability of God, and they said, but I think a better word would be, a uh, category would be constancy or something like that. Yes. And and you point out that he thinks he stepped away from the philosophical conversation by using this term constancy, but he's actually just grabbed a whole other bag of philosophically loaded uh, ideas and, and thinking that he stepped away from the philosophical problem in some way. Indeed, um, and it really doesn't matter if you, for example, exchange the attributes of God for the characteristics of Yahweh or Adonai in, in the text, you you still are working with certain terms. And if you exchange words, as the theologian Walter Brueggemann also did, um, where he uses a lot of words that's more related to literary and sociological criticism, but also it doesn't link up to analytic philosophy. So, well, he has a few references to them, but to continental philosophy, um, what Old Testament theologians always do is that they they tend, well, they cannot generalize, but many tend to dismiss, with very good reason sometimes, certain philosophical approaches or concepts. But what they don't say, or maybe not be aware of, or are aware of, but only find out a generation later in the readers is that they were using just the latest philosophical vocabulary in fashion. Like you may not use, say, Hegel or Kant or any of those philosophers, but maybe you use existentialist language or Buber's personalism or existentialist language, um, as Karl Barth did or others, um, or maybe some postmodern jargon. But because these are taken up into other disciplines in sociology, in literary studies, in linguistics, like metaphor also, but they are still, even if they are no longer part of certain philosophical traditions, you, they still have so much philosophical baggage and go way back in the history of philosophy. And I say, since we are using it, let's see what we can do with it. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, it's almost as if you're arguing that if somebody gets a PhD, they should actually have to take classes in the PH portion of that D, right? The they should actually have a philosophical underpinning to the doctorate. Yeah. Yes, um, I think the thing is, we, I, I distinguish between what you would call first order language and second order language. Now, one can, to give an example, the first order language would be, and of course it's controversial and complicated, but if you read the Bible, the, the words you read in the text, irrespective of now questions of interpretation, that's the first order language. The Hebrew, uh, irrespective of textual critical issues, let's call that the first order language. The language with which we use to describe it, like most books or most students don't read the Bible, they read books about the Bible, and people in church too. So when you describe God, you use words like divine and 
religion or characteristics or attributes or na the nature of God or um, a relationship. And these words, along with other words, that doesn't seem philosophical like history or um, concept. All these words is not in Hebrew in the Bible. They don't have these words. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't use them, but you can never stick to just using the language of the Bible. Otherwise, you might just give somebody the text and not write anything about it, but that wouldn't help because it still has to be interpreted, and you're going to use the language, let me just say, in your head, which is always Western and all these concepts. So the second order language is the language scholars use, all these technical terms in theology that they describe God in the Old Testament, um, or whatever it is. It doesn't have to seem very philosophical. And other methods too, linguistic approaches, historical and other approaches, or the language we use in English or other to describe what we see in the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible is what you would call second order language when we think about it. Now, we can never check whether our language exactly fits the biblical language. We want to aspire to do so, but if you have your description in the one and the text in the other, as soon as you say, well, let me compare this, as soon as you can correct yourself, but when you compare it and you say, oh, okay, this is what I say and this is what the text is, what you say the text is, is again what you say. So it's a it's a circular, infinite um, problem in hermeneutics or the theory of interpretation. So we don't try to, to pretend we always just get it right. Um, it's not that we don't take it serious. It's just if we are aware of the, the language of scholarship, then you see that most of what we think we know about the Bible is what scholars wrote about it. And it's part of what we call what we, the Bible yeah. says. No, I think that's, that's exactly right. And also, if you set out the goal that there is one correct interpretation, there is one thing meant to be meant by a text, you, you know, you've already set out a problem. <laughs> you've already laid out your path into a dead end, right? So, I, I just want to say with regard to that, I, I think... There's this paradox in science where you both say, look, everything is tentative, you must be open to critical questioning, and this is as history in Christianity as well, where you're not perfect, so you can make mistakes, and um, you might not have the right interpretation, so you must be open to the fact that your interpretation might be wrong. Whereas you also say, well, this is the latest research, and this, that one, the previous one, views are wrong, and this is thought in class. Nobody tells people, okay, well, we're probably telling you something it means it's, but it's probably wrong so you can't don't link to it because the association <laughs> with it is that this text is important and you must believe it if you don't know if, if it if, if you can't this is a struggle in the study of scripture for many people that if you can't give them the right of interpretation it's, it's the same loss of motivation so there's always this tension but it can be incorporated in, in Christian spirituality and otherwise as long as you accept that you are not perfect and now, if you humble yourself and then just go with that, and then you can work with uncertainty within a faith context. Yeah, I, I actually think that it's part of the epistemology of Scripture itself, that it's, it lends itself towards this kind of scientism. Um, but that, that plurality of interpretation should be, can be mutually enriching um, and, and tentative simultaneously. Sorry, even for those who believe that the author would have just meant one thing for his audience, and you don't believe in any history of redaction or changes in the books or growth um, or sources, and even if you believe, okay, what the author says, what God wanted to say, 
you can still believe that and still be open that there's not just one view. Why? Because unless you think you are in touch with that view and that one is perfect, then um, you you really can't say. So if, if you allow the fact that one might be wrong, even if one did believe in one meaning and, and one divine purpose for a specific thing, you can still work with a view that we will never know that for sure. We can try, but um, I don't know. So it, there's a lot of ways to harmonize all these different views, but I get, yeah, it's difficult. Not, not unless you're locked into one particular right answer, which I pr happen to hold, or you know, that's the that's the defeater here. Yes, I think um, I realized as I was reading this again that you and I um, are like brothers from another mother in this. That um, I, I, and part of is my undergraduate training was in social sciences, and there was just this kind of like you know, whatever is true comes out of a good process. So get your process straightened out, you know, work on your process and then tr truish stuff, stuff that will lead you and guide you correctly will naturally flow from whatever comes. And I think, um, so I, I, I think both you and I are pro legomena guys, uh, uh, or at least at this point in our lives we are. Maybe we'll flip over into something else after we've solved this problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, that's one of the things. Um, I guess why we do it is because it is something new that is also very old. Perhaps one of the oldest forms of reading the Bible as theology is philosophical. But because of the previous century and because of new developments in philosophy and because of the lack of philosophical approaches at present, this is one of the forefronts of research that took a long time to convince people it's worthwhile, but it seems to be coming in its own given the references to it by others who don't work in it now so yeah yeah i think it's it's actually people are catching on to it well uh this book is a i i call it a book of many subtle jokes and i'm not sure how many of them are the only ones that i get but uh let me just quote and this will lead us into another character that we need to interact with you say uh quote another series of gifford lectures on natural theology were delivered uh, this time by an Old Testament scholar we have come to know as Barr, James Barr. <laughs> uh, I, I actually think I stopped and laughed at that one. Um, so where do you rate James Barr's work now, you know, kind of looking back now, where do you see his work uh, as helping this effort and where do you, where do you think he stopped short? And, 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 and are you familiar with the renewed philology movement? Somewhat, yes. Um, and I do think, especially in linguistics, uh, many views have moved beyond these, both with relation to semantics of biblical text and um, Hebrew thought. Um, I think for his time, he, he was ahead. And by that, I also mean constrained. Um, he was addressing issues at that time, responding. I mean, if you look at when Bowman wrote his Hebrew thought, his publication was within a year of that. Um, he wanted to be semantics. And um, some of his natural theology, it, when it came out, it was, well, it, I can't say revolutionary because there were tendencies towards it, but it, it, it was one scholar among a few who were consistently trying to be philosophical, but they never went so far as to become it. And he still believed philosophical theology, if I'm calling that, I wouldn't have a place. I mean, for him, he, he just pointed to the way they are different. Um, but he, he, in a way, 
just expose the fallacies. Um, and that is one of the criticisms of his work, that most of it is negative in a sense of he's very good at exposing problems, but his positive contributions are not so many, although it's more than mine and most of us. Um, uh, he did a lot of positive, I mean, con also new views that doesn't just criticize others, but actually put something forward. But philosophy and philosophical approaches were not his whole approach. And yes, you're right. Um, there's been a movement beyond much of what he did. But I guess the history of uh, philosophical approaches in the 20th century, at least, cannot do without at least saying something about his contribution there to whether positive or negative, in a sense of critical or affirmative. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I, I, and even the, the renewed philology, which wants to pick up some of Barr's impulses immediately says, but we need to push past, you know, some of his trappings in modern postmodern uh, debates. So. Um, yes, he's, 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 he's the linguistic theory that he, that he uses and that he was dependent on was of course, well, in fashion at the time, but linguistics, and that is the problem with, we, but because scholars have no essence, we always work with some other discipline like linguistics or literary theory and um, or sociology or philosophy or history. And, and as these disciplines develop, we see the problems that were in those theories and assumptions that we used when that other discipline was in a previous era or previous paradigm. So linguistics that Bible dependent on has also changed. And I guess it's now easy to point to a lot of these errors, but they are linked to the linguistic outdatedness of his linguistic um, informants <laughs> as well. And choice of his choice of informants, of course. You just uttered in passing, like the most quotable quote ever, biblical scholars have no essence. <laughs> but that, yeah, but that is in the sense of you can't, nope, well, I guess lay people read the Bible, but then they read like, if I may say, a story or a poem, which is, as soon as you do it scholarly, it becomes literary criticism in some way. And and others uh, do it linguistically with grammar. And so th the reason for this is no essence is, I guess uh, we have an essence, but it's like this core type, we study the Bible, that's the essence. But as far as methodology is concerned, there's no such thing as a biblical method or so it's always dependent on your choice of another discipline in another area whether with from linguistics through to you know, any and it's not a problem and none of these because of the modern split in specialization and in disciplines none of these can give the full picture you're always going to need them all for a more holistic approach and the philosophical one is just a neglected one for also good reasons of the history um, just showed us that some philosophical ways belong to a previous era and, and had some problems. <laughs> yeah. Um, so speaking of uh, philosophy of the recent generation, you keep reminding us that you're, you're more steeped in analytic philosophy, but I'll, I'll point out that when you chose to kind of help analytic or sorry, uh, biblical theologians, like I called it your, your spiritual exercises and in, in the kind of old Greek sense of uh, spiritual exercises, you use uh, Baldriard uh, and uh, Nietzsche <laughs> as your your two like uh, workers of spiritual exercises. So, uh, describe how you kind of use them to help, uh, basically help a theologian locate herself and her task. Yes, um, I guess 
initially, when I tried to combine the Bible and philosophy of religion, I was more link, linked or interested in analytic philosophy of religion, and because philosophy of religion, as so-called, is more uh, or was more analytic discipline in the context I got to know it. Um, but in the past decade or so, I became more interested in continental approaches, partly to see how I can link that in my research, because um, it might have different ways, and it combines other humanities and social sciences. But also on a personal level, I also find a lot of interesting stuff, if I might call it that, in continental philosophers. So when I was starting to write this book, it was going to be a and an application or, of the, or comparison with an analytic language to describe the Bible. But by the time I got to the chapter, how to put a hermeneutical or theory of interpretation or just an, again open a door before I do it, I've, I, I'll remain, I just, it just came to mind some of these um, um, views and stories and um, images and of philosophers um, that you mentioned, as well as others like Richard Rorty, and I just suddenly, at that time, in that moment of writing, realized that this has potential to assist in this old task. So, yeah, there's a lot of continental there, especially in the laying the foundations for the for all the various buildings that you could build on it. Yeah. In, in, in typical, what I consider typical Yaku style, you offer a menu of, uh, I don't know, 14, 15 ways into biblical theology here of the Old Testament. So I actually, I, I went down the list and located myself. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to read to you where I think I end up on your, on your these are di- they're dichotomies, but they're not a mutually exclusive dichotomies. Um, and they're kind of, you're either this or that, or you tend this way, or you tend this way in your work. Um, and so here's where, uh, this is under the ways to do philosophical theology of the Old Testament. I tend to be extradisciplinary, implicit, weak, positive with a negative wing, if I can borrow some Enneagram language here. Um, hard, practical, descriptive, comparative, autological, uh, transworld, I like that one. Transworld, realist, definitely on the realist side, um, extra-religious with an intra-religious wing, uh, systematic, metaphilosophical, diachronic, second-order, multiplex, pluralist, applied, historical way. That, that was my most accurate way I could get. Does that sound about right? <laughs> I, I, I think so. I'm just to tell the audience that these are all technical terms in philosophy and, and philosophy of religion and, and otherwise. So, for example, if you say weak, it's in the theological sense of one does not, one thinks, one puts a view forward, but you open yourself that you could be wrong, you know, and insist on it. Um, and the strong is more insistent, as in weak or strong atheism. The strong atheists will say it's, it is like this, and the just is how it is. And weak is, well, um, um, it's probably like this, but we're not going to push it. So in that sense, weak, but not weak at all in terms of anything else. So um, <laughs> some book say, reviewers would say that I'm just weak in, in all the categories of weakness. Uh, no, so. weak is a technical term in the typology of, of religious. Um, of, of various views. Um, so I, I would say, yeah, 
I the reason I created that topology and the complexity and all that detail was actually very opportunistic and very prudent because I thought the best way for me either to be cited or incorporated in future research is <laughs> to appeal to every possible person that might I could appeal to. Um, so it, it was actually not just a case of it, it was also a case of my personality that that when I'm interested in something, I, I tend to go into, get analysis paralysis and just go into this complete, everything becomes complex, even the most simplest things, and I, I just see all those possibilities. But on the practical side, it was to it was to show that all these ways are possible, That if you, because that was one of the things I picked up in my first book, is people thought, oh, well, they still don't see this, so it's not going to happen. So I thought, okay, let me catch you next time and show you all the ways you could see it and it's probably going to happen. And then um, I knew I had to, um, because many people have a view of philosophy or philosophical theology or philosophical approach to the Bible, that this is a philosophical approach, that's why it's wrong. And I can even agree with that in most of those. But on the new approach, there are many philosophical approaches. Everybody does something and like you did, you can situate yourself there. And for me, that's just open opportunity for, I can be like this, I can be popular among all those groups that I couldn't be popular in, and an older generation and different views. But it also ultimately just boils down to the fact that um, with all these distinctions about possible approaches, I, I wanted to show I've thought of everything and I wanted to give everybody a chance. Although from an ideological perspective, you would say, I was just trying to cover all the possible ways you could fault me on it, or you could give an excuse not to do it, which is also true. Gladly admit it. (laughs) I hope all the uh, PhD students out there are listening to that, that technique you use, like, Hey, this is how you get people to force them to engage with you, right? Get a, get, get a big panoply of ideas and they can locate them. Although I will say, I know you think it was opportunistic. I actually found it very helpful to walk walk through every one and kind of ask myself, well, where do I fall on the spectrum? Where and and why? How do I justify that? Right? Yeah, it was it it was meant to be helpful um, for those who are interested and meant to be convincing for those who are not. And and many people won't still be. Um, anyway, we are very early with this still, but. Um, I guess you can also fault some of those distinctions and people well, and it's right that they do and they can improve on it and they'll say, no, I was too exhaustive. It's not necessary. to." This has actually been one of the criticisms of part of my work in the past where I was criticized because I covered all, all possible ways and so there's in, 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 in one aspect and then it's not conducive for further research and I think even Nisha said that the best way to win people over is not to do everything, but just get them interested in, and so that they can also see the gaps and find something there. Um, like you say, I tr- in that sense, I just did everything in laying the foundations, but the possibilities for building on it, I could never do. So it because people who haven't thought like us of all these ways philosophy can interact with scripture, I you, you had to show them well, if not this, then there's other ways and other mindsets and other way, 
approach just like you just did. So I sort of had because they wouldn't have been able to see themselves in one of the places otherwise if I just had argued for a specific approach. Yeah, and I, and I think that's why the word ecumenical uh, came to mind when I read this book. Of it. it really is kind of welcoming people in from lots of different sectors to find their place. And I also tell people uh, when, when I talk about listen Wissenschaft uh, that you know people think this is an ancient way of doing things. I'm like, oh no, no, I, I know a scholar who does this today. Like he he uses list philosophically to help people reason through ideas. So no, I think I think again, it was just very. Helpful and another reason why I think if if you're teaching a class on biblical theology, this is like th this book is going to be have to be a standard prolegomena uh, for that class. Um, not because not because anybody's going to agree with you, uh, but because again you've created spaces for people to find what needs to be said and and where they fit into the conversation. I, I think um, there's just a distinction between my argument for a method and my argument for the perspective on the text. Um, if there's one thing I would like to think of, people would agree with me, is that some sort of philosophical, theological approach is possible. Um, that is something I try to argue for, um, I, but I have, no, um, I have no expectation that people will agree with my interpretation of specific texts or with a lot of other variables, and that's okay. I mean, there's no way they could possibly, and I, I, I don't expect it of them. In fact, they shouldn't. And not even people who otherwise disagree with me. Um, you know, that, um, and they're also welcome to find fault, whether from a biblical scholarly or systematic theological perspective. And I don't, I, I try to be ecumenical for the method. Um, and, uh, but I don't, I don't think I'm objective, and I don't think but you try to be, of course. We even say you don't believe in objectivity, but we all try to be. It's it's one of those paradoxes again that you say you can't be it, but everybody pretends to be. I mean, you have to write in person. You can't say I think this may be so. Well, let's just run with the idea. I wanted to write every yeah. sentence like that, but you can't. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, before we're going to move into a speed round here in a minute, uh, but before we do that, I was wondering if you could just give us because um, some people. They may be nodding along, going, "Yeah, this all sounds right." But maybe you could give a concrete example, like your your number one go to. This this is what I'm talking about. Take up one particular issue in uh, in the Hebrew Bible and walk it out for us. Okay. Um. Since the book is more about the language Old Testament or Hebrew Bible theologians use, and not just about the Bible itself. And since people already think Old Testament Hebrew Bible theologians are describing Scripture or the Bible as it is, or as as we could best could, um, I would say, if you look at any theology or theological approach, we'll see that of what is of interest is Adonai, Yahweh, or God in the Old Testament. And when you start to describe God in the Old Testament, and philosophical theology is mainly about divine nature, attributes, and relations, of course, you can debate uh, whether it should be designed like that and so on, and whether what it means, everything aside. Um, and since Old Testament theology is also about God in the Bible, or however you perceive um, the character um, of the deity, um, I think that example, the nature of the divine nature and the divine attributes as per the Bible, or characteristics or properties, that is, as with specific form of philosophical theology, the prime and most broad example and applicable. 
because basically if you think of philosophical theology as interested in the divine nature, attributes and relations, and you think of Old Testament theology as looking at what the Bible assumes about these things, whether you agree with it or not, I think that is that may not be very specific, but it is both specific and broad to cover it. And, and so in, in that case, we'd be thinking about, and, and this is where it breaks down to those pluralities. We might want to think about how does uh, Genesis or the Tetratuk, uh, the, the different sections deal with this issue versus, you know, uh, the poetic material or something. Um, and is there unity in all? Is there diversity in those views? And, yes. Um, and uh, I completely agree with you there. I also think that part of the approach in biblical scholarship is also to say it is not this or not that. Um, I mean, in philosophical theology, people are aware of certain philosophical theological ideas that they get in with contemporary religion already. So uh, part of our job, especially in a comparative approach, whether with ancient Greek philosophical perspectives or modern um, biblical scholarly ones or philosophic ones, could just be to say, as some did in the past, but didn't call it like that, this is not what the Bible assumes. We think that because this is how we look at it. And like you say, different books, diversity, you can think of it as diversity in thought, theological diversity, or just diversity as some conservative scholars would do in perspective on the same thing, or various genres, or whatever you would call it. So, indeed, this, this approach can accommodate any form or content, uh, the approach is the, the core issue, the philosophical theological approach, which used to be considered impossible. But once you consider all the possible things philosophical theology can be, it's no more not valid or biblical than any other method in biblical scholarship, and no more less informative, because as with other methods, if you don't do it, you are more prone to read your own philosophical stuff in it, Even, and which is shown by the history of interpretation by those historical, critical, other scholars who tried to, but couldn't. As they say in Hebrew, amen. Uh, okay, so are you ready for our speed round? Yes. Okay, so I think the so. goal is to keep it, keep answers compact, unless you need to explain, right? But just keep it short. I have a few tasks here as well, and we'll get to those. But first one, are you willing to do a Henry Kissinger impersonation right now? I'll try if you tell me what that might be. <laughs> I'm so sorry that I'm not... Do you, do you know Henry Kissinger? The name's familiar, but I can't place it. I think oh. I'm just... Well, you got off free on that one then. That's fine. If you don't know who he is, then you're no worse of a person. Please just give me one example of something he did, then I'll probably know who he is. He was an advisor to President uh, Nixon in, uh, during Vietnam. Uh, he's an older Jewish man, has a very distinct, uh, deep, throaty, smoky voice uh, with uh, no, no pun intended on deep throat there, by the, by the way. Oh, um, <laughs> no. Um, no, it's okay. We'll move on. We'll move on. I probably remember it from history in school, but I, I, I don't yeah. know how the voice sounded, so it's okay. Yeah, it, I, I think we, if you're our age and American, then you probably know who, probably know who he is. Uh, younger, no, it's not a chance. Um, what's your favorite holiday? And and maybe I could say, what's your favorite South? Is there a distinctly South African holiday or a South African way of celebrating a, a particular universal holiday uh, that you like? Well, 
I think any holiday, and with music, the, the one I like, I can't say, it's just one I happen to like. It, I, I can't say why I like it. Um, I just know it when I like it. And it's usually one I'm able to relax because most holidays, especially for research, I can't relax. We, we have most of the holidays you guys have, but also different. And obviously with some of the food and some of the dates and some of the cultural practices are different. Do you guys have a, um, a particularly different Christmas food or something like that? Um, to some extent, some some families, um, and we all, because of Hollywood and so on, um, know the turkey tradition and so on. Um, that's probably Thanksgiving, am I right? Or is yeah, it yeah. Well, and Christmas for a lot of people as well. Yeah, most people will have a fancy dinner at Christmas, if, and they will... Turkey is not so popular here, so most people will probably have a chicken and other, or just some fancy food um, that's just for the special day. But it's not as in America, it's so linked to specific edibles. Yeah. Do you guys have, um, I know in Kenya they have these restaurants, I, I think they're mostly for tourists, but they're like shuhaskarias, like these barbecue places, but they... It's like every animal under the sun. You can come get a little zebra, a little ostrich, a little whatever. In South Africa, um, we are more Western, or not Western, um, I say American, because most people here like McDonald's or KFC or those kind of stuff. KFC is everywhere. (laughs) And everybody loves beef and chicken and uh, and those kind of um, meat or uh, the basic uh, rice um, and such. I know there's. We would call that exotic. And and the last time I saw that was in Namibia, so the just west of South Africa, at a conference where I tried to order a beef burger because I usually don't eat um, uh, the the venison, um, the the wild meat, and um, just tried to order a beef burger and they brought a prawn on top of it. <laughs> But there were crocodile and giraffe and so on. I've, I've, yeah, I, I'm a bit fussy about what he's doing. No worries. Uh, one of my favorite questions to ask professors is, have you ever made a student cry? No, I have not. Um, in fact, it's, it's actually the opposite. Sometimes they make me cry. Um, because I tell them, I tell them, you don't have to agree with anything I say. I, I just want to tell you what's the latest in research, and you can, when you answer your papers, you can tell me you don't agree with this. Just tell me that you know what this person that you don't like said. And the, the way they write it and the way I can see they're struggling with it and uh, my own experiences in the beginning of study, uh, that sometimes sends me. I, I don't know. I know it's not mainly for a man, but well, I'm one of those. Uh, it, it's... But no, I don't. In fact, I, I try to incorporate jokes in all my classes and use PowerPoints and memes and stuff. So exactly for that, because I, we were raised in the older generation where you had these stern professors. Who everybody must be copies of them. You can't talk back and you can't ask questions. So I didn't want to be that. I'm not saying I'm better than that. Some, sometimes I think there's good to that too. But I know it, it's hard for me. I can't. People crying is one of the sites that... It's, very, very, probably one of the most meaningful is the wrong word. It, it's, it, I don't know. I don't have words for it. it. It moves me too much. Yeah. 
Um, sometime off off the air, I will tell you uh, John Levinson's story of if he ever made somebody cry, um, which he did not want us to put on the the podcast, but for good reasons. But it's a hilarious story. Um, uh, okay, I got a I got a joke for you. I got two jokes for you, maybe three. We'll see how it goes. Uh, knock knock knock. Who's there? Unsharpened pencil. Unsharpened pencil. Never mind, it's pointless. Uh, knock knock. <laughs> Who's there? Control freak. Control freak. Oh, okay, now you say control freak who? <laughs> control freak. Okay. okay. Um, let's see. This is over Skype, so these are all timing. Uh, now I don't know if you'll get this joke. It'll be interesting. You might because because of movies. Maybe you'll get this. Uh, how many Vietnam veterans does it take to screw in a light bulb? I don't know. You wouldn't know because you weren't there, man. I, I understand that. <laughs> okay. It, yeah, I, I completely get that. Okay, good, good, good. That's awesome. That's You've seen enough. Uh, you got any of your own? Now, I should tell everybody that um, Yaku is the only person in my life that sends me a daily philosophical meme. So I, <laughs> often they're, they're usually well curated. Um but uh, do you have any good one-liner jokes you want to share with us? I think if listeners use their imagination, everything we just said was funny. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you can laugh at what everything we said, then you're going to make it. <laughs> you, you have to be able to. There's no other way to survive this business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a good point. We should have a little therapeutic moment here. Uh, okay. So for the philosopher side of you, uh, the, the first and second law of philosophy. The first law of philosophy is uh, for every philosopher, there exists an equi- equal and opposite. You want to guess the answer? Non-philosopher? <laughs> Philosoph- philosopher was the answer. There exists an equal and opposite philosopher for every philosopher. Uh, second, second law of philosophy is they're both wrong. Okay. There's a, it, there's a, there's a little bit of a puzzle. If metaphysics is being qua being, sorry, qua being, and epistemology is knowing qua knowing, then metaphilosophy must be... Well, um, philosophy qua philosophy? (laughs) Uh, Good guess. It's qua qua qua. (laughs) Uh, um, I think I might get some... um, I have some intuitions here, but what professional, you know, you were saying part of scholarship, what professional obligation do you dread the most? It depends on where I'm at. I can sum it up. Admin. Sometimes having to do emails and meetings and stuff exhausts me so much that I that I really can't do any writing. And um, because I have so little classes, I enjoy that. But if I'm if I'm tired to write anything, I just keep writing over as well. So... Admin, and when I when I'm infected by admin, <laughs> affected by admin, I start to hate everything else. <laughs> yeah, I completely understand. It's the part of the shift that if you're just an adjunct, you know, when you're in the U.S. business, a lot of people start out as adjuncts, you know, doing various adjunct teaching, and and you, and it's very difficult. Uh, I this is my own problem. Is I started out adjuncting a lot. I taught quite a bit on adjunct, and I thought, well, this is great. And then you, and I didn't realize that adjuncting is actually the easiest, uh, in some ways, the easiest job because it doesn't have any of this other stuff that comes with it. 
Yeah, I also started as the, that. I was a research assistant. I don't know if that's the same, and a uh, teaching assistant. And at one point, I was writing emails for the dean because he had other things to do. Um, so, and at that time, it was the only job I had. So I was grateful for it, and I really enjoyed it. But if that's the only thing you do, that's great. And if it's in a context where you start, it's, it's everything new and nice. But if, if you have other stuff to do, it's not. But everything too much also. It, I mean, initially when I just did mostly research, it was a privilege and very nice and so on. But as the years goes on, you still have news ideas, but they become less they become less fresh and less interesting very much sooner. So you quickly have to start producing and publishing on them because if you, it's like with some thesis, the last six months is absolutely horrible. You've looked at it so many times, you've, or your dissertation. You, so the older I get, the harder it is to 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 um to work on one thing a specific piece of work well that leads directly to my next question which is if your academic life story so take your whole life story as an academic if it were a movie which stanley kubrick film would it be i'm gonna have to tell you again i would have probably have seen stanley kubrick films but because i never linked to the name i can't place Ah, it okay well you, you want me to give you some options it's not, uh, if it was the latest Joker movie, I would say that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're, you're, you're close. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking The Shining, um, Full Metal Jacket. Um, actually, I'm going blank now. Those are the only two that stuck in my mind. <laughs> On a continuum between The Shining <laughs> and Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> it's, I'd say it's... It's everything because it's every genre in it: horror, comedy, <laughs> uh, yeah. drama. No, so, that's that's a good way to yeah. put it. It's like it, also the, the Hebrew Bible is a lot of genres, a lot of stuff. It's got everything, yeah. But um, yeah, everybody's cup of tea. So. Uh, speaking of genres, uh, next question was actually, uh, what do you think of Bob Alter, Robert Alter's work, his translation? Where do you situate that? We used to get him prescribed to us. Um, he wrote a book, if I remember correctly, on the narrative. Mm -hmm. The art of biblical um, narrative. Yeah. That was one of my favorite books. Um, and uh, some of his other stuff, too, that I can't remember because it's actually 30 years ago, uh, 20 years ago. 20, yeah, in the 90s. So I haven't been in touch with his latest work. And if that's what you mean, I, I honestly don't, I'm not in a position to judge. Yeah, I don't think his latest work has varied wildly. I mean, he had the art of biblical narrative, the art of biblical poetics, and or maybe poet poetry. I forget which one it is. But um, and he he now has the art of Bible translation, which is kind of a prolegomena to his his big translation work. Um, but yeah, I think yeah his his thrust has remained that his rudder has stayed in the same uh, azimuth, basically. Yeah, um, I like his work, but I can't. I liked the, the the narrative criticism and poetics. I, I like those approaches, and, and but that was also as a student. So as for the it was place in research and what other specialists in that approach to the Bible now say about his work and the merit of it, I, the problem is I've become too specialized now, and I've so much need so much time to read the things related to this that I'm out of touch with so much else that I. I would fail the only the exam I used to write about him. 
um, where I used to tell, say what he said and so on. So um, I would thanks for telling me about that book, though. I would like to have a look at it, but. Well, I, I think a lot of listeners are nodding their heads going, yes, I understand. I, my, my students are always asking me like, hey, have you read this this or that book? And I'm like, I'm just trying to keep up with the reading and my sub, sub, sub discipline, you know. So. The further you get into research, the, the, the more you know about less and less until you know nothing about everything. <laughs> or everything about nothing. I don't remember. Absolutely. Um, what's the, the, the standard question we ask everybody, so it'll be painful, just prepare yourself. Um, what's the most important or the best book in biblical studies written in the last 50 years? According to mainstream scholarship or to me? To you. To you. I would like to say my own, one of my own books, but I would lie. Because that's not what Google, the citations on Google says. Otherwise. <laughs> but but I, I, I also would like to say some of James Barr's books because of what it taught me. But it also brought a lot of pain. So I'm going to get him back there posthumously. <laughs> no, I'm not. Uh, actually... That's a very good question, and I'll probably have a different answer every time you ask me. So I have no answer. I hope that's an answer. Yeah, no, no. You, you, you gave us a little sneak into how you were thinking about it. We can also ask, but what do you mean by important then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ship, yeah. Well, I think oh. actually, with like you said with James Barr, a lot of people, when you ask them that question, they kind of go back to what's the book that really – they remember feeling emotionally impacted by and like this changes everything that, you know, that book where you, you read it and you go, okay, everything's different now that I read that book. Um, so I think you gave us an insight there. Okay. Um, final question. What idea in biblical studies do you wish would just go away, go the way of the dobo, dodo bird? At present, none, because there are some, get into biblical scholarship because of them and some biblical scholars you might offer a new view on them look there's a lot i don't agree with and i might not like but if i can bring back or i'll bring back the idea you can do philosophy and i could look this is capitalism so there must be a market for <laughs> all the ideas out there and as long as there's a market i can say i i i would like no because I have to, would have to think of a reason why I would like them to go away. And if, if I thought it's because I don't agree with them, or I think they are damaging or... Well, let me ask you a particular one then. Because I think between you and I and the kind of work that we do, um, I, I think Bowman's book has been... Bowman both has really good insights in it, uh, but also created what we would consider a, a false dichotomy probably, right? Yes, but isn't... Look, what, one thing I've learned to my own horror is that some of the most popular and cited scholarship are cited and popular because people disagree with it. And some of the most best research is the best because it spawned the most further research and required the most refutations. I mean, if you look at people who are now thought of as um, the classic Old Testament theologians, um, von Ratten, um, Achroten, those people, if even those people who now still think of them like that, every almost every bit of the detail theory has been revised or changed, and um, and some people would say, like Barr, would say a lot of things. Brevard Charles wrote is wrong, but if it wasn't for Brevard Charles, what would 
James Barr have written about. And it, if it wasn't for people's dichotomy between Hebrew and Greek thought, what are we doing? <laughs> so so we, we have a novel niche in research because we disagree with ideas. Okay, it, it, I'm going from cause to effect and reasoning back, but and of course, it doesn't mean one wants those things there, but at least, yeah, so... I, I, I learned this lesson uh, when I was about halfway through my PhD writing it, and um, my supervisor, you know, we're meeting, going over chapters, and, and he just said, yep, yeah, right, this is all fine. Uh, he's British, so I don't know if that meant horrible or, or good. But, um, but he said, but you need to tell me who you're going to push the destruct button on. <laughs> He's like, he's like, you're not actually doing academic work until you can say who is wrong and why they're wrong. And I, and I just was so hesitant. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to say somebody's wrong. I wanted to just construct something. Um, but, but there really is, there is a, there's a positive way to do that as well in community. You don't, yeah. And I think you, you've been a very good example of somebody who knows how to handle that conversation. Well, well thank you. I, I also think it is um, constructive research if you become specific with regard to whose theory or whose views or hypotheses you are referring to because otherwise it can go get so general and people tend to dismiss a person even when most of the stuff they wrote is wrong then one throws away some of the good stuff and I was amazed to look, read some of the older autism theologies again for this book and find out there's some very good stuff there that's now no longer read because it's just They've been discredited in name, but it's still very nice reading. So, so I don't think one can be fair to anybody unless you go with a specific thing that they're saying. Um, and there's a need for that. I think my personality, well, I can't really say that because I've been very critical, but um, I, I think in response to this question and then a previous one, the ideas I would take offense because I'm programmed to are those that almost that have been shown to be outdated. And most people agree with that they're outdated and they're not viable anymore. And then there are groups who are anti-intellectual who put these forwards as this is now that and everything is now outdated and scholarship becomes the things they promote on a popular level. As if this is... Because you, if you take the Hebrew Greek thing, if you just scan the internet for it, um, there are websites and places where people are now trying to convince the public about how Hebrew thinking is different, and now they depend on our data discussion. I think I would like to see that go away, but if I'm going very broad, it gets some people interested in the Hebrew Bible, so who am I? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a good, a good point. Well, Yaku, thank you very much for your time. It's been an, uh, enlivening and enlightening, and uh, I really do hope everybody uh, goes out and gets this book and reads it again. It's probably the most technical and entertaining read you're gonna you're gonna get in a long time. Um, so, thank you very much for your work, uh, your camaraderie, and uh, and the work you're yet to do. Thank you, Drew. Thank you for your support, your your um, confidence, and everything that you've been over the years and um yes um i would like everybody to read the book um it's always pricey um but thanks for listening if you've listened this far thank you very much and yes thank you 
You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.